You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, and welcome to this week's edition to Pathway to Peace, a show which analyses the current issues and trends affecting us all, trying to find the answers to problems that affect our political peace, economic peace, social peace, and perhaps the noblest of them all, inner peace. In an article published on the 12th of March 2023 in The Guardian Online, the author states that large corporations have fueled inflation with price increases that go beyond rising costs of raw materials and wages, pushing shopping bills to record highs, according to an analysis of hundreds of company accounts. Highlighting a trend dubbed greedflation, the research indicates that supermarkets, food manufacturers and shipping companies are among hundreds of major firms who have improved their profits and protected shareholder dividends, giving an extra lift to prices while the cost-of-living crisis has meant workers face the biggest fall in living standards in a century. Analysis of the top 350 companies listed on the London Stock Exchange by a team of researchers at Unite, the UK's largest private sector trade union, showed that average profit margins rose from 5.7% in the first half of 2019 to 10.7% in the first half of 2022. You're listening to Kaleem Anwar and Neil Tahir in this episode of Pathway to Peace, where we'll be looking at what exactly is greedflation, does it even exist, and what practical methods does Islam contain to help combat this problem. So a warm welcome and Islam Kaleem Neil. Waalaikum Islam. Um, a bit of an economic theme this week, um, because uh, I think as we were sort of talking before the show, um, there was there was a there've been quite a few articles published. Um, Pretty much this year, where I've I've seen this new term sort of pop up um, called greedflation, um, and I'm just wondering, okay, so it's, it's another, is this sort of another sort of idea or theory that that's come into play? Um, but I think I, I just before I sort of kind of we go into that, I think it was quite interesting. Obviously, as we're sort of broadcasting live, just only a few hours ago, we had the final session of the annual convention in Germany, the Jalsa Salana in Germany where the head of the Amdi Muslim community, Hazrat Mizan Masur Ahmed, the fifth caliph of the Amdi Muslim community, um, gave his sort of concluding address. And sort of the first part of that address, um, it was just really interesting where um, he was remarking on almost the, the rights um, and responsibilities involved in sort of fair trade. Um, and so I just thought it was quite interesting with a sort of almost a sort of an economic angle there as well. Um, which I think, to be honest, no doubt, uh, I think our, our sort of presenters for next week already lining up sort of the topic around, around that particular theme because I think it's quite fascinating isn't it within Islam you know some sort of you know if you think of a, a I say a revelation that was you know brought to the world through the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him over sort of just around 1500 years ago where in that document in that sort of uh, you know how can you say you know belief system it's, it's, it's advocating sort of just the, the basics of when it comes to sort of trade and industry, buying and selling, you know, right down, you know, right down sort of uh, the contract as such. And, you know, when you think about, you just look at, for example, UK law, it was only within the 19th century, where latter half of the 19th century, where you're sort of, you know, getting legislation in about, you know, writing down, you know, having a sort of the law of contract, basically. So it's quite remarkable, isn't it, that it's a testimony to itself that a religious document, a religious scripture, I should say, has um, has put forward these ideas and concepts. Absolutely. I mean, um, 
you know, you, you don't necessarily associate um, maybe a religion yeah. um, with kind of um, looking at the tr uh, trade aspect yes. or, you know, uh, the financial aspect of, uh, of life. But um, yeah, yeah. Islam is such a complete religion that it covers, you know, encompasses all of these uh, topics. And, yeah, um, yeah the, the Quran is, uh, you know, talks about, you know, which we'll come on to, you yeah. know, interest and, you know, uh, how we should trade, etc. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. It, 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 I, once again, I, you know, it, Evidence again, I think, as to you know why it's a, a scripture that's sort of catered for all the sort of aspects of of society. But this this week's episode, then, um, so as I mentioned, sort of at the outset, there was an article that caught my eye, and um, it was, there was actually an, I mean I've referred to an article uh, published. This was actually uh, published back in March, where in that particular article it talks about. You know this notion of greedflation and how big firms are driving shopping bills to record highs. What is interesting, um, and I suppose we'll come to that in, in a moment, but there was actually an article published literally this month, um, once again on on the uh, the Guardian website, and this article. I'm just actually trying to bring it up online now, where it's sort of citing a Bank of England sort of report, and and in this report it's sort of making mention how you know whether or not greedflation is sort of actually having an impact uh, on prices uh, it seems to the the author of this um of this uh, of article this was an article actually published on 30th of August so just a few days ago and there's actually saying that there's little evidence of greedflation in the UK according to this bank of england study but i think before we even get into that i thought it might be sort of worthwhile for benefit of our listeners where before we even talk about greedflation, it's obviously coming from, a, I suppose, a root word, inflation. I don't know, could you sort of educate, particularly for economic novices such as myself, I don't know, can you just give us sort of your sort of, your, your sort of lowdown on what exactly is inflation? Yeah, I mean, inflation is kind of um, known to most people as kind of a general rise in, in prices. Yeah. Um, and in kind of typical economic theory um, that there's different types so you have demand pull inflation where um, I suppose if the supply is not enough there's not enough supply right. uh, and there's more demand for for um, a good or service um, that would cause the price to rise um, and then on the other hand you've got uh, cost push inflation so where you see the cost of producing goods and services um, goes up uh, it could be for you know a number of reasons but uh, yeah. yeah it may force uh, kind of businesses to increase their prices right um and then something that we've kind of been seeing more recently be talked about is um wages and and right. and that causing inflation so the bank of england um uh governor recently and, and he was criticized for it actually yeah. um he came under fire for um for saying that you know workers shouldn't ask for uh, a pay rise right. uh, and yeah. the reason being was that if if uh, a worker gets a you know higher wage; they'll have more money to spend, yeah. and that in turn um, will lead them to spend that in in the economy, um, and then that would cause higher, you know, inflation. higher inflation again. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, but it, of course, you know, most people when they're working, of course, they're going to look for a you know yeah. if, if costs are going up, they're yeah. going to look to to try and increase their yeah. um, their wage. Absolutely. Um, and you know, it comes to this this argument again. You know, I'm sure. We'll, we'll we'll get into it, but yeah. uh, you know when when there's companies, big companies, corporations making big profits, yeah. um, you know, 
and people are feeling the pinch from this cost of living crisis, you know, it's it's a bit hard to say to workers, you know, yeah. you can't ask for you know, a pay rise, yeah. but uh, these corporations can make big profits and uh, yeah. uh, pay the dividends to shareholders. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, and, and once again, we come back to this this sort of double standards principle where it's just becoming all too apparent, isn't it? It becomes too, too sort of, there's the haves and the have-nots, really. It's almost a clear divide. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the the argument for this, you know, the economic argument is that, of course, as I mentioned, if you, you ask for higher wages, you know, it will lead to higher inflation and that's yeah. bad for everybody. Yeah. Um, but I think there needs to be, you know, you need to look at the other side of things and, uh, you yeah. know, this greedflation yeah. uh, concept that we're, we're going to come on to. Yeah. Um, that is cer- certainly something that needs to be looked at. Um, and so, because we're seeing in this country massive levels of inequality. Yeah. Um, and so you can't expect the, the average worker not, you know, we've seen a lot of strikes from, doc, you know, yeah. uh, I think unprecedented strikes yeah. um, from public sector workers who are not receiving uh, what they feel is, is the... Um, the, the right wage um, and uh, yeah th- th- there needs to there needs to be some give yeah. um, because you, you know this it can't continue like it's this it's human nature right you, you, yeah if you're kind of up against it what can you do but sort of ask for more um, which which kind of I suppose nicely brings us on to this sort of concept of greedflation so as, as I said I, I it literally caught my eye um, this month in this article that I saw um, and I just thought, is this is is this is this a new concept? Um, can you tell us a little bit about what greedflation sort of means? Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, uh, it, it is. Um, it's not something that I was particularly familiar with either, actually. Um, but it, it's something that we've seen talked about. Maybe not the, the term used, but we've seen it in the in the media in terms of, um, you know, I think one good example is uh, the oil companies right. and how they've. Um, Basically, following the Ukraine war, they've yeah. profited massively um, from rising prices. Yes, um, and you know that that is essentially what it's about: yeah. um, companies profiting or price gouging. Yeah. Um, you know, charging excessively high prices yeah. for goods and services because they can, I guess. Yeah, exactly because they can, and uh, yeah. yeah, and and that's the issue, and that's where. I think the the argument of of government intervention and taxation yeah. um, comes into it, um, but yeah, that, that's essentially what it is. And uh, you know, we, we've, I think the, the Shell and and yeah. uh, BP have you know have had, have had bumper yeah. profits recently. Yeah. Um, so, and I think even in Italy, the banking system um, recently, uh, I, I think is been charged a 40% levy now so right. you know in different countries are trying to tackle tackle it in different ways in different uh, industries right um, but essentially that, that's what it is because yeah um, greedflation is is simply the, uh, the the ability to charge higher prices yeah um, because yeah. yeah because of yeah. high demand for those goods yeah I've got a on the website um, <laughs> you can tell this is this is the type of stuff that I read learn uh, learn-economics.co.uk defines greedflation as refers to the charging of unreasonably high prices, you mentioned, during episodes of relative supply shortages caused either by supply constraints or unusually high demand. This may be due to natural disasters, uh, to the deliberate activity of monopolists or merely the result of monopoly power uh, or high levels of inflation. So, so, so you're right, I mean, just given what you've said, we're in quite... Um, 
well, interesting times probably is the wrong choice of words, but you know, the situation that we're in now, because given the Russia-Ukraine conflict, post-pandemic, you know, the likes of which we haven't really experienced in a century, it, it seems to be, oh, and obviously coming from the UK perspective, given that we've sort of, I say, I say severed, I don't know about a relationship, but the relationship we have with our European partners has probably been at an all-time low. And it just seems to be the perfect storm, I guess, for supplies to maybe take advantage. Yeah, I, I mean, one good example is during COVID, obviously we saw kind of uh, toilet paper or toilet yes. roll was, was out of stock. Yes, and uh, yes, there were, you know, we, we saw some uh, maybe smaller um yeah supermarkets you know charging like yeah. exorbitant prices yeah. um yeah. so yeah that that was one example of uh, of uh, you know of a kind of uh, yeah. inflation I, you know i actually remember i don't know if you remember this one but th- during the pandemic there was actually uh, it was remarkable actually because it, so the his holiness was delivering um the friday sermons you know every week during the pandemic um obviously couldn't have abiding by sort of the, the social distancing conditions but there was an interesting, there was a really interesting um, Friday sermon where it had become apparent that in, for example, the local towns, there were sort of local businesses that were taking advantage. They were sort of spiking the price of, yeah, like toiletries because as, because obviously it became sort of all the rave to sort of, you know, accumulate as much as you can. Um, and as a result, sort of small businesses were sort of profiteering and sort of, you know, jacking up their prices. And his holiness actually remarked about that saying that that is not the Islamic thing to do. So, yeah, once again, just sort of coming back to what we talked about at the very outset of the show, how Islam caters for sort of these conditions, you know, and that it doesn't, um, you know, that, that that's not the right thing to do if you're, you know, if, if you know, we'll probably talk about this more in the latter half of the show, but, you know, how, um, how can I say, wealth is not a bad thing in itself. Yeah. But it's the sort of un unsort of restrained accumulation of it to the detriment of others that's a different thing isn't it yeah i think um i think there's a hadith as well about price fixing as well right. and, and and you know that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam not yeah. not um you know not price fixing so that that's yeah. quite uh, yeah. interesting i mean um i haven't got the uh yeah. the hadith to hand so yeah. I, I won't quote it you know try and um, yeah. quote that but yeah. um just to say that you know that was uh, something that he he would avoid doing yeah um so yeah, I mean, which is fascinating. Fascinating, given that literally within the last fifty hundred years, you could say that legislation that's coming around cartels and competition law, it's remarkable, really, when you think that. It, for me, well, I've said this many a time on this program that it's just one of the greatest travesties that when people they take the average, you know, man of the street, and sort of ask them about their views on Islam or the Holy Quran, and their view is warped beyond all recognition and yet if you, and yet if you present to them that it it talks about numerous rights you know rights of the worker rights when it comes down to sort of you know buying and selling all, all for the benefit of of both parties you know no one is sort of being um, favored upon the other and it's for the benefit of 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 societies for the benefit of man and it's yeah remarkable really how um yeah islam has sort of been painted been tarnished with this sort of warlike um you know religion um which is a shame um which sort of brings us to sort of this middle segment of the show because as part of sort of the research um sort of in the, in the background to this particular episode it came upon um this uh, fascinating sort of interview 
uh, on uh, on YouTube. So sort of our sort of sister sort of station really is a, a group of uh, two two brothers, uh, Dahir and Umar Nasser, who have a, a YouTube channel um, called Rational Religion. Um, fantastic for you know for those of, of listeners who may not be aware of it. If they do go onto YouTube and they sort of type in Rational Religion, and you'll see these two guys and. Um, Brilliant. The content is amazing. Talk about a whole multitude, a whole plethora of things. And they have sort of, on some of their shows, they have sort of an economics angle as well. And um, and there was a particular interview that they had um, uh, with an economics expert. And um, and they're sort of talking about, this pro- This particular episode talks about almost the, the negative consequences of the endless creation of money by banks. Um, and how it's con- and, and it's remarkable because they sort of tie it back to how it's connected to environmental problems, wealth inequality, just conflict in society overall. And I guess there's this notion, which is, which is quite interesting because it ties in with, a bit with, with, with the theme of this week about inflation. But they talk about how the creation of money leads to a sort of a cycle of debt. Uh, we're borrowing more and more money is necessary to keep repaying those previous debts, which sort of fuels this continuous production and consumption um, that ultimately harms the environment and our well-being, um, it, you know, sort of has an impact upon even sort of the, the housing supply. It, it just it's quite remarkable how they sort of tie it back to sort of all sectors of society. And I think what is interesting, they, they, they talk about this sort of pi- power dynamics between the lenders and borrowers, um, which sort of continually sort of perpetuates this sort of wealth inequality. Where this old adage, the rich become rich and, and, and the poor it can, you know, struggle to access this capital. So um, let's take a listen to this clip. It's, it is, a, I, I, you know, as, just as a heads up, it's a, sort of a 20, it's a, it's a much longer interview, about an hour and a bit, actually. But we've got sort of 20 minutes of this clip. Uh, and I think it's probably worthwhile listening to the clip in its entirety rather than breaking it up. Because you see how, the, how they sort of traverse the sort of all sort of sectors of society and just how the impact it has upon all, all sort of parts of society. Um, so, yeah, let's take a listen to what they had to say on this. What's the, what's the real-world consequences for society, for the environment, for foreign policy of the endless creation of money? Yes. I mean, this is a deep question. Uh, there are Thank many, you. There are many. That's what we got in for. Because it, it takes us into multiple problems, um, which people often don't connect with with banking and money. If I was to say to you that the plastic in the sea or global warming is connected to this system of money uh, creation and banking and interest charges, then you'd be tempted to laugh if you were new to the subject. Mm. But I sincerely believe that the major cause of the environmental problems that we're having in the world and the wealth inequality uh, and the conflict, the foreign policy issues, the immigrants on boats coming into Europe, half of this or more... and it's it, difficult to put a percentage. It's on difficult it, really. to put a percentage, but I would but, say but a majority, the big, big, por- the biggest portion of that problem is because of the monetary system that we have. And why is that? What's that got to do with the printing of money endlessly? So, so one example is that uh, let's go back to the golden receipts thing and start there. If um, let's say there were a hundred pounds of gold coins in in circulation in the whole nation, mm. and I as a banker create. 500 receipts, 500 pounds of receipts, and lend them to you at uh, 30% interest, something like that. Um, 
after one year, these £500 of receipts have to be repaid and you have to pay me the interest charge, 30% on 500 is 150 Yeah. So you'd have to pay me 650 Yeah. Now, the problem is that at the beginning of the year, there was 100 of gold coins and 500 of paper notes, which the bank created. Mm. So there's only 600 of money in total in the whole society, yeah. in the whole nation. Yeah. And yet now the bank is asking the nation to repay 650 so the point is that at the end of every accounting period, there is not enough money to repay the debts that are owed to the bank. Yeah. Whether it's the government or the people or companies, in total, there is not enough money to repay what we owe to the banks at the end of every year. Yeah. And the only way that society can react to that is by borrowing more money from the bank. So it creates more to pay so last year's debt interest. It creates more this year to repay <clears throat> the unrepayable debts which it loaned, loaned out last year. Now, this creates a very powerful and wealthy interest. Uh, I'm using that in the political sense in the society, which is the banking system. Mm. And the banking system, naturally, because it has this power to bankrupt people by not lending them the money that they need to repay last year's debts. Yeah. It gives it a power of patronage to finance which business it wants to, to, to survive, and those it doesn't, yeah. it can call the loans back to support which government policies it wants. Because yeah. if it doesn't like a government's particular policy, it'll say, we won't buy your bonds. Right? And this power of patronage makes bankers the effective rulers, mm. number one. Number two, because society can't repay its debt, the natural reaction of businesses and people is to work harder, to earn more money. Because you think, oh, I have to get more productive in order to I need to produce debt. more to yeah. repay my debt because I'm not earning enough, which creates this <coughs> forced economic growth where people are only working to repay debt, not to produce things that they need, yeah. Yeah. but to produce for the sake of getting the money to repay the unrepayable debt, so in which itself never works anyway because... The problem they're facing is not a one of not being able to produce enough. It's a problem that there isn't enough money, no matter how much they produce. By design. By design. Mm. They could produce another planet Earth, and there would not be enough money. Because you'd have to have a planet Earth plus Mars next year. Mm. To uh, rape, to well, the, 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 the system has 600 of money yeah. and is asking for 650 to repay. And it's only the bankers who can make the decision to create the other 50. Yeah. You create another planet Earth, they don't need to create another 50 even. Mm. Yeah. Right? So, so in a way, <clears throat> interest... Is the is the incentive the banks have to create more money, mm. and the creation of money continuously ad infinitum to prevent catastrophic inflation requires a continual production of goods and services, which ultimately result in the consumption of our entire environment, yes. our entire lives, our mental well-being, um, in a bid to pro continuously produce to kind of soak up all the new money that's continually being created. Right. And when that new money is not soaked up in produce and production, that can, I presume, spill over into wars, into resource finding, into new uh, seeking new markets, or which inflation. have not been tapped. Or if it doesn't, inflation. Which mm. is just a tax on everybody. Which is just a tax on everybody people. anyway. Yeah. So, so that's partly, you know, the, is that partly the story of the global kind of inequalities that the continuing kind of, um, use of developing nations or underdeveloped nations to um, as new markets for our goods, you know that's part part of the things that I've read about recently. Yeah. That that actually 
you know, our story of development is not a story of development with structural adjustment programs of the WHO and the IMF. Actually, we've been mm, trying to world Bank. the world. Sorry, the, yes, the the, the World <laughs> Bank. Yeah, not WHO. Sorry, <laughs> pandemic. Pandemic. My mind. <laughs> yeah. The IMF and the World Bank. The structural adjustment programs they put in place have actually resulted in so-called developing nations actually not developing at all, actually going backwards, and actually having their markets being opened up for products from the West, effectively, um, flooding those societies and preventing them from developing. Mm. And I guess the, the answer to all of that is that <clears throat> new money needs new markets, because otherwise it will result in catastrophic inflation back home. Yeah, I think, so the plastic in the sea and the global warming from this forced economic growth that we, we're producing and our industries are active and emitting carbon dioxide and refuse of all kinds, uh, this is largely driven by this financial system that we have and the imperative to repay debt. So that, mm. that's one of the, the issue of money creation and being able to indebt others who are then subservient to you because they have to repay you. And if they can't, then what do they do? Right? Yeah. Um, that issue uh, is, is very pertinent in the developing world because governments who are in debt uh, to the World Bank or the IMF often overtly uh, and, and sometimes covertly are uh, told that you must repay, and if you don't, then we're going to dictate what your policies are. Mm. So the World Bank is very clear about this in these structural adjustment programs and that kind of thing um, from the World Bank and the IMF who, who basically tell uh, finance ministers in countries what they can and can't do um, uh, if they want more money, and because they're desperate for more money, they do what they're told. And that happens to their own European nations, in fact. You know, and, and now, to Greece yeah, and right. Yanis Varoufakis and his, his narration of you know, how effectively he, he got told this is going to be your policy. Yes, uh, the power of the lender. Um, so you, you were asking, you know, about the, the, the consequences of the system. Um, and you also mentioned wealth inequality, and there is another process there. And the, the fact is that uh, when you go to a bank and you ask for a loan, um, it does really depend very much on how wealthy you already are as to whether you get that loan or not. Right? Mm. So um, you know, people, are, you can get a bank from a, a loan from a bank very easily if you can show you don't really need the money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's the old quip, but it is true. Bankers will look to see, does this man have old master paintings? Does he have shares in his pension? Does he have gold in the vault? Does he have a big house? Does he have property assets? If so, yeah, we'll lend you, uh, you know, plenty of money. Two million, yeah, whatever, go and do your business. Well, why is that? What, what, what's about the rich people that they can Well, because the bank will take security on, on the assets and mm. it, it knows that if you don't repay the money, it can take your house and sell it and get its loan back. Or it can take your old master paintings and sell them and get its money back. Well, which is amazing so, because they, they, they kind of win either way. If, if, the, if you don't pay back the loan, they take your collateral for the money that they invented. And if you do pay back the loan with the interest, they, then get, they, the money anyway. they get the profit. Well, that's fine. But there's a bigger issue. And the, the issue is that when a poor guy goes to the bank to borrow money, the bank looks, have you got any collateral? Do you own mm. any wealth? And the poor guy says no. And the bank says, well, sorry, can't lend you. Mm. Now, the reason this is important is because if the banking system lends new capital to people who are already rich and doesn't lend new capital to people who are poor, then the people who get the new capital are the rich and they become even richer. And the people who are poor stay poor. Mm. And wealth inequality therefore grows naturally simply because we have a debt-based system. Now, if I can contrast that very quickly with an Islamic 
argument here about what happens in Islamic finance, the way that money is invested is not as a debt, it's not loaned at interest, it's invested on a profit-sharing basis. Yeah. So if I invest in you, if you're running a restaurant or a, a, a factory of some kind, and I say, I will invest two million in you and I'll share half your profits, yeah, then what really counts to me now is not whether you're a wealthy guy, but whether you're a clever guy, whether you've got a good business idea, whether the market is there for your product, mm. yeah, whether you're honest, all those things count, but not how wealthy you are. And therefore, my decision is not based on your wealth. Therefore, if you're poor, but you've got a good idea, I will invest in you. And that will directly address the issue of wealth inequality, because the poor people will now get capital to play with, and they'll have a chance to do business. So it ties the capitalist with the entrepreneur and aligns their values and their aims and objectives. It, it ties the bank with the entrepreneur. The financier. The financier with the entrepreneur. And, and it aligns their interests. And so the, the point that I have tried to make many times is that this system of equity, and we have equity investment where you buy shares in a company yeah. and share its profit and losses, that system is much better for financing hmm. uh, society generally and much better for addressing wealth inequality than this sort of uh, knee-jerk yeah, knee reaction that every time we have a financial crisis you'll hear the Chancellor stand up and say we have to get the banks lending again yeah. this is precisely why we have a financial <laughs> crisis right? Right. stop it man <laughs> and, uh, you know, but it's like a knee-jerk reaction that you can't stop and one Chancellor after the other will say it and you can look yeah. back 50 years and see this that direct, direct, direct. I don't think they really understand <laughs> well they may do they, I don't people, think they do know. understand uh, Let's see. Let's see what happens. You know, let's judge each one on on, on his or her merits. But um, I think so far the history generally has been that they have not been willing to promote an alternative. Um, mm. We have plenty of new banks being proposed. We have very few new equity venture capital type investors being proposed at government level. Mm. Where, where are the big venture capitalists for the northern powerhouse in this country? Where are the big mm. uh, investment funds on an equity basis? They just aren't there, really. Not, not, not at the government policy level. They're not yeah. really promoting them. This is really interesting because uh, a lot of people have an issue with how, no matter how the real economy do, is doing, the financial economy and the financiers of the world are, seem to pretty much always be doing well. On the rare occasion, there's massive systemic banking failure. The government kind of just bails them out anyway. Yeah. So you have the financial economy doing like, you know, going really well like this, even if the real economy is tanking or, or doing unwell or not doing well. And what you're talking about with the equity thing and, and the fact that you can tie a financier's profits to the performance of a company in the real economy is that you're basically saying that the, the financial economy becomes unified with the real economy yes. and only rises when the real economy rises and only falls when the real economy falls, which means that you don't create a banking elite that therefore have a huge amount of economic power and therefore political power. You don't create this kind of class of financial overlords that can dictate everything for the rest of society. They're kind of, they are there, like you said, like they're just servants of the rest of the people. Well, that's one That's one consequence, yes. Yeah. And banks, uh, if they are lending to wealthy people or wealthy companies, they mm. tend to encourage very, very much bigger companies to come into existence. Mm. If you're big and you get more loans, you become very big. If you're very big and you get more loans, you become very, very big. Yeah. And so we, we get a society of uh, a, a very small number of very large corporations who are dominating business. Yeah. And everybody else becomes a low-wage uh, low employee for them.
So, and so, so there are consequences to connecting the financial economy with the real economy, mm. uh, in in the sense of uh, the the equity within the distribution of wealth in the society and the kind of society we have. And I, I mean, I can give you an example uh, of something very mundane that people might not think of, but. Saturday morning, there's a huge queue coming off the, the main road to go to the supermarket. Mm. And there are roadworks to make that junction bigger to take that amount of traffic. Um, this is because we have a monopoly of five or six grocers in this country now. Mm. And where we used to have 50,000 grocers, we've now got around 10,000 in, in uh, the UK. Um, and of those 10,000, there are a couple of thousand that are enormous sheds um, at major junctions where we all have to go to on a Saturday morning to shop. So we have congestion. And instead of having owner managers running their own shop and knowing you know, their groceries and knowing you personally, we have anonymous workers in a very large supermarket who are frankly dumbed down very often and don't know much about their business because why should they? They don't kick, you know, they get paid the same whether they care or not. And that kind of thing. Mm. Again, you might not identify that as a problem that comes from the monetary system, but this business giganticism, this monopolization of the efforts of society, this transformation of people from being owner managers with some dignity and self-respect into mm. low-paid, couldn't care less employees in a very large anonymous company, that, that kind of thing is a direct result of uh, the, the money and banking system. So, you know, connecting finance with with the real economy is, it's not just about wealth inequality, it's about what sort of society we want to live in. Do we want to see a few huge house builders building 5,000 houses in your yeah. local field? Or do you want to have 500 <laughs> small house builders building houses of variety in clumps of five or six dotted around several villages? And the consequence, just to spell it out for people, that's all because of how money is created through debt and debt attracts the people with the biggest collateral. So people with the biggest collateral get the most debt, they get leveraged up the most, they can build more houses, and then they have more assets, and then they can get more debt. Well, and then they, have, go and, then they go and eat other smaller companies, effectively, that's right. don't they? For example, so you have the centralization where big company gets a loan from the bank and gobbles up small house builder, yeah. creates an even bigger house builder, well, it looks for one field to build 5,000 houses on. Identical houses. And, 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 and it wants an architect to design three different types, so the variety is lost. So you can travel to so many you know, British villages now and see that they're, they're like clone towns. They've got the same 20 shops. And this is something you know, that people, I think, have an instinctive feeling about, which is that they go into the city of London and they look at the old architecture mm. and they see you know, uniqueness and they mm. see variety and they see um, subtlety between this street and this street and this street, and there are only three streets mm. away. And then, you know, you see the new builds and they're all identical. Yes. And, and so that's just, that's just one avenue. That's one aspect of life. It's one small aspect. And I think if you read someone like Leon Creer, who writes on architecture, he says that uh, the amount of architecture, the amount of building that was built pre-1945 in the world is roughly the same as the amount of building that has been done since 1945, believe it or not. Mm. Yeah. At a rough guess, he says. And then he goes on, he says, you know, if we were to lose all of the architecture that was built before 1945, people would say, this is a real loss. Yeah. But if we were to lose everything post-1945, <laughs> and, and one must ask the question, why? Yeah. Right. Why has our architecture become so poor? And again, the financial system is... If you look at the cost, if you have interest rates at 10%, for example, um, 
and you want to build uh, a house, then around 60% of the cost of buying that house as an individual goes in interest charges to the bank on your mortgage. That 60% is the 60% that could have made the house beautiful, bigger, bigger garden, less density of developer, you know, less yeah. like sardines packed in and more space around your property. That 60% is the beauty that we've given away to the banks and got nothing for. Yeah. Right. Um, and th th we must at least ask that question, you know, why has our architecture become so poor? It is largely driven by financial considerations, partly because we have these few very large house builders who are you know, uh, trying to reduce quality and uniform architecture. Uniform design. And actually, I was, that have, it's not just architecture. I was thinking about movies. Everything. Clothes. Entertainment. Everything. Clothes. Arts. Yeah. Arts. You know, almost anything that you buy and sell, this has happened to you yes. because the producer has become conglomerated. And so this is a major point we need to emphasize, I think, which is that you know people do rail against the corporate culture and the dominance of corporations. Even in the news media, there's like a yes. handful of news media who then now dominate all of the news spheres and all the yeah. news channels. Yes. And so that has a consequence for receiving information. And and uh, propagandizing proper how you're propagandized by by, by yeah. institutions. So it actually influences every aspect of human life, doesn't it? So in every aspect, you have interest-based finance creating more monopolization, creating uh, like you're talking about with the with the local communities and the, the grocers, a loss of that sense of community, more turning us into drones, and a loss of artistry and you know having all these insidious effects on essentially every sector because of the way that we do finance at yes. the heart of it. Yes, the centralization, the dumbing down, the loss of variety, the increasing uh, control of a very small number of uh, corporations in, in every area of business. You've just listened to an interview there with uh, Derek El Diwani, um, who is uh, someone who's graduated in accounting and finance from the University of Lancaster back in 1985 um, and has gone on uh, is basically an economics expert um, in this area. Um, interviewed on the, the Rational Religion YouTube channel um, with the two presenters, Dahir and Omar Nasser. So, and, you know, that was a fascinating um, sort of interview there. Um, it, it, it's just, I, I thought it was remarkable to play sort of in its full entirety, entirety because there's a lot, they covered a lot, <laughs> you know, it just shows... Effectively, the sort of the system is almost like a sort of a house of cards type, you know, situation here. This is fundamentally sort of a debt-based system, which those who who have the means, the capital already can can sort of leverage more money from the banks, whereas sort of those who just who are just literally on the fringes, they just don't have the means. They sort of have this sort of dwindling spiral downwards. They're not able to sort of kind of jump on the ladder, and um, the. So sort of the analyst there, Darek um, Eldewani, he sort of mentions, well, if you compare it, contrast it to an Islamic-based system, um, you know, you sort of will partner up with someone. If you, if someone, if someone, as he gives the example, if someone was a millionaire and they saw someone out there who had talent, who's not necessarily wealthy themselves, but has a, has a bright idea, has the drive, the potential, the talent, you know, you sort of go into partnership with them. And, and obviously, if it does well, you you know, you, you, you reap the rewards of that. Um, and obviously, if it doesn't do well, obviously, you, you so that you you partake in that loss as well, but but just that that subtle sort of change into sort of the way we do our sort of of you know financing within society, it has a remarkable impact, doesn't it? It changes the it changes the game completely. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it has an impact on, uh, I think it was mentioned in that in that yeah. clip, but yeah. it, impact on pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, and, and I think they, they refer to the environmental impact it has as well. But yeah. the, the issue here is, you know, they talked about, uh, well, we talk about interest and, and yeah. that um, kind of widens the gap within society. Yeah. We're in an Islamic-based system, um, doesn't allow uh, interest uh, to be charged, yeah. um, and as you mentioned, it it um, is based on a concept of of risk sharing, of yeah. risk sharing and profit sharing. Yeah. Whereas at the moment, it's all geared in favour uh, of the lender right. uh, rather than the borrower. So if you um, you know if you borrow some money or you know mortgage, for example, yeah. um, you're paying the interest, and if you can't keep up with the repayments, yeah. they've got that collateral that they can then also take back from you as well. Yeah. So um, and the the core of this whole topic is about the the creation of money, mm. um, and it's essentially central banks have the ability to create money. You know, typical economic theory um, tells you that banking uh, is basically lenders and savers. So, yeah. um, you know, if I if I have some uh, excess money, I'll lend it to somebody, um, and uh, who needs to borrow it? Yeah. But that. That that's a kind of outdated kind of um, concept of, of banking. It doesn't actually work that way. Central banks have the ability to create money, and they do this. You know, for example, the Bank of England right. they use a tool called quantitative easing. Right. Um, and and essentially, what they do um, is they um, they will uh, buy. There's a bond purchasing scheme. Right. So they will issue bonds, um, and then yeah, that will create uh, which which is them buying, uh, sorry, them buying bonds and then issuing the money, right. um, and so that's quantitative easing, and that money unfortunately does not trickle down right. as quickly as it should do. So it goes to the banks. The banks then have that ability to then lend to, yeah. um, you know, businesses yeah. and people, um, and essentially that that's where the the crux of the issue is. Yeah. I think they mentioned there that money goes to those. Um, you know, who, who are richer, they're able to then access those funds, yeah. um, and that doesn't trickle down to the people that you know, the poorer in society, and that those that need it. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And you know, we, we've seen that the Bank of England. The other way that they can um, impact the money supply is by raising interest rates, and we've seen that you know that happen over the last number of months, and yeah. that's increased people's mortgages yeah. and, and exacerbated that cost of living. Yeah. Um, so yeah, th- these are. These are kind of all. Yeah. I suppose we could talk about this for for hours. It's a hu- yeah. huge topic, but yeah. um, essentially the crux of it is the the creation of money and that ability yeah. um, to be able to create money. Um, and, and I think that that's where all of this stems from. Yeah. Now, Islamic banking, I, I think, has been tried, um, but I think Darik Lawani and I've heard other others talk about it. Um, that Islamic banking, unfortunately, because it's within the confines of that system. Right. Uh, of that, you know, some some call it the fractional fractional reserve banking system, but it, essentially it's that um, yeah. the, the ability to create money. Yeah. Um, it because it's within the confines of that system. Yeah. It's still, um, you know, it's still not. It's just within uh, the bubble. Yeah, it, it's, it doesn't really have that impact. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not really Islamic uh, yeah. in that sense. And if you think about it, how many Muslims in this country actually use Islamic bank banks rather than conventional banks? Yeah. Um, so, so that's the that's one of the issues that we have yeah. at the moment. Yeah, that that gosh, that's probably a program in its own right. That 
you almost need to find a way in which to give Muslims and non-Muslims alike the chance to partake in Islamic form of banking and to see who benefits, you know, are they are they better off? I mean, it's definitely worth trying. I mean, interesting, Russia have just announced that um, from the 1st of yeah. September, so a couple of days ago, that yeah. they are, they're going to introduce a, a Islamic banking model. They're going to, I think it's a program that I they're piloting in, in four different uh, states or areas. Interesting. Um, so we'll see how that pans out. But yeah. again, it's within the confines of that, that existing system, mm. and it's, it's pretty, okay. pretty difficult yeah. Um, yeah. to kind of... Uh, to see if it, if it, if yeah, it fully, I mean, fully works. Yeah. yeah, essentially, I mean, you're still having the, the, the original money that is created is still based on this um, fractional reserve, yeah. what is termed as fractional reserve banking system, right. um, based on interest. Yeah. And so whatever happens within that system is yeah. still um, is still an issue. Yeah. You know, something we didn't mention earlier about inflation, I think it was covered in this clip, was, you know, inflation reduces... Oh, well, so if more money is created, right. there's a bigger supply of money, which means the value of your your pound goes down. Right. So, um, yeah, that is another big issue. And, and in the wider clip that, that you referred to, I think it's about an hour and 20, and, uh, right. you know, other people have also discussed it, other yeah. experts in Islamic finance. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy called Horace Irfan who, who's quite, um, uh, quite vocal on this. Mm. And... Uh, Interestingly, they mention, um, well, he mentions Bitcoin as being a um, an alternative and being the hardest form of money, and maybe that is right. um, more of an Islamic form of money. Whereas Tariq Al Dwani, I think his yeah. his viewpoint was gold is still you know, yeah. the the way forward because it's tangible, right? Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, but the reason, and and just to differentiate between Bitcoin and other cryptos, the reason Bitcoin specifically was mentioned was because the fact is that it, there's limited, there's a fixed supply. Yes. Where, where yeah. whereas here, central banks have the ability to continuously create money yeah. when when needed to kind of adjust the inflation rate. Yeah, good point. Um, and so it, it's very interesting. It there's different interesting. different ideas and concepts yeah. of, of how to yeah. tackle this issue. That is interesting. Um, and I guess really all of this is around just this 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 human nature, this sort of drive for just ever and ever more accumulation of wealth, um, which, let's take it back to the Holy Quran, we talked about at the beginning of the show, how this scripture is talked about the realm, you know, the realm of the, of, of the economic sphere, but also, you know, I think what people sort of fail to forget is almost, it has a sort of a, it covers this sort of the psychological, if this is a scripture that we believe has been revealed by the creator of, of the whole of, of society, of mankind, right, um, who who would know us better than the Creator? And so there is a verse um, in the Holy Quran that sort of alludes to sort of our our sort of psychological sort of makeup in this in this regard about why we have this sort of thirst, you could say, or, or, or this hunger, which which I think if left um, sort of uncontrolled, well, it wreaks havoc, and and we see that we see the results of, of the system that we live in. Uh, or the, the injustices, rather. And so there's a verse in the Quran. This, is, this comes from chapter 57, verse 21 of the Holy Quran. And the English translation is as follows, that know that the life of this world is only a spot, is only a sport and a pastime and an adornment and a source of boastings and of rivalry in multiplying riches. This life is like the vegetation produced whereby rejoices the tillers. Then it dries up and then it becomes broken pieces of straw. In the hereafter, there is a severe, severe punishment and also forgiveness from God and his pleasure 
and the life of this world is nothing but a temporary enjoyment of deceitful things. So, in this verse, um, I'm going to unpack this a little bit because there's a, there was a, a remarkable speech. It's been published in book form. Um, this was uh, an address uh, by the late second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizra Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed, um, in a speech which has now been sort of titled The Economic System of Islam. Um, this was actually a speech he gave in Lahore, Pakistan in 1945. He reflects on this verse that I've just read out and he's deduced from this verse, um, he, he sort of outlined sort of five, there are five, he's, he's sort of deduced five motivations um, that sort of lie behind this human urge to amass wealth. He deduces from this from this one verse. So I'll, I'll, if, I, if I kind of list through these sort of motivations, he says the first motivation from this verse is the this desire for entertainment, play or amusement, recreations like gambling, betting. So he says man seeks wealth so, he, so that he can satisfy his desire for entertainment. And, and I, I thought it was quite remarkable in the sort of the clip that we heard that you when you think about the nature of sort of filmmaking programming, you know, it's sort of, you know, based on sort of the, um, it, you know, there's relatively, well, if you, it's another subject entirely, but if you're trying to get into sort of programming, you know, even putting up your own TV station, it's a very hard sort of industry to break in because you've got these sort of, you know, financial backers who have the means to come back to the example of house builders within, you know, a similar analogy. If you're trying to build houses, it, it's in sort of the the um, that that lies in sort of the hands of a few who are able to sort of you know build houses on mass and so as a result it sort of affects the nature of house building likewise of programming you know it's 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 in the hands of very few um, who are able to sort of put you know push particular forms of content which sort of excludes others who who may want to produce their own form of content I, I just find it quite remarkable sort of what you know the the, the sort of the the similarities here um this second motivation is the desire for leisure. Um, he deduces from this verse. He says to have, so, basically, you know, there's a sort of drive to have so much that there is no no longer a need to work. People with this motivation want to be completely free all day to laze around and spend time playing, you know, drinking, you know, etc. Um, and I, I can't help but think, if you think about some of the drives in technology, you know, technological advancements is a great thing, you know, if it's for the benefit of mankind. I can't help but thinking that there are certain drivers for technology where it, it sort of, it sort of, um, the impetus for it is so, so that you've got more time to yourself is sort of how it's coined, isn't it? And I don't know if sometimes that has sort of, uh, whether or not that is um, maybe the right sort of drive for sort of technology. Um, I'll come on to the third motivation as well. The third motivation is, is the desire for elegance. Um, I to have sort of luxurious, luxurious clothes, cars, food. And I think there's something to be said here because there's a lot of but there is a lot of this. Well, we see it play out in social media, the sort of the keeping up with the Joneses sort of mentality. Um, it's probably something there, isn't there? It's probably some element there. Yeah, I mean, I think we've we've mentioned this before, but it, it's now very difficult. I mean, like, like you say, you open up social media and yeah. and, and uh, you know, you you see kind of maybe some bloggers or, or whatever it is you know yeah. with uh, you know these luxurious cars or yeah. wh whatever it is yeah um and that kind of well, they, which they don't seem to actually have a living but just to boast about what they have right yeah exactly i mean it's uh i, I think i think that that is their their yeah. full-time kind of yeah uh, yeah that's the job. yeah um but then yeah like i said then that 
then that creates the haves and have nots and yeah. you know people maybe I mean there's nothing wrong with aspiring to kind of to get to a certain level but like it's you know I think where you mentioned this verse it, it, it's, it's almost like a sport yeah. that you're just trying to acc- accumulate this wealth yeah um, and, and something kind of tr- just trying to draw a parallel in, in terms of you know economics as well yeah something that you know the the factors that you look at uh, in e- economics, uh, you look at inflation, you yeah. look at GDP, you look at unemployment, etc. Now, GDP is basically you know the production of goods and services in the economy and, and how well a country is. That that's how it's kind of seen how well a country is doing based yeah. on the fact that whether their GDP you know gross domestic product is up you know yeah. there's economic growth. Yeah. Um, but what this fails to look at is the impacts. That it has on the environment, yeah. Whether inequality is rising in a country, yeah. Um, and so, you're just using this measure of, yeah. of of growth as your kind of like yeah. um, benchmark of how the the country's doing, but you're missing out all these other important factors. Yeah. Uh, and so, if you're, you know, coming just coming back to the verse, if you're just looking at this from a purely um, economic growth point of view, yeah. Um, you're you're certainly not not helping in other aspects. Yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I just think that you know, if, if that was used as the if that if that was used as the yardstick to measure what you know how, what is the level of injustices within within a given society, um, you know that that would be a true measure. Um, that you know that that would start to sort of all redress the balance um, within society. Yeah, I mean, imagine you say, okay, yeah, we've had five percent economic growth, yeah, um, but then we've had you know five percent widening of inequality, more yeah. more homelessness, yeah. and that's what we're actually seeing. Yeah, um, I mean, we're not even seeing the GDP growth at the moment because yeah. Uh, yeah. you know we're, we're the, the economic situation is is yeah. is quite dire. But um, yeah. you know, but, but the fact that we're focusing on on that metric, yeah, um, means that we're we're missing the point entirely, yeah, that, you know. Exactly. And we're not looking at these other really important factors. Exactly. The the last of the, the, the fourth and fifth sort of motive that the second caliph deduced from this verse about our sort of this innate desire for wealth, he said the fourth motivation is is the desire to be able to boast, which in a way we've sort of talked about already, what we see sort of on sort of social media, people have just made it a sort of a career in its own right, showing off the sort of their, their sort of goods. And this fifth motive, he says, um, he says the fifth motive is the mere addiction to accumulating wealth. Uh, when individuals start to compete with each other in accumulating greater wealth, if their neighbour has one million, they want ten million, and so on and so forth. I mean, that says a lot about the, sort of the human psychology that there's some there's this sort of addictive element to our personalities where you just constantly want more and more, um, which you know it says 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 a lot about the sort of the human the human condition. Uh, but um, but I, I mean. Well, we won't certainly won't have the time to sort of address all these aspects, but you know, Islam does sort of have it brings in these sort of control, like I said, for a religious scripture to sort of bring about the solution and um, to help curb some of these things. Um, but it just shows how we talked about in previous shows about this uh, this element of zakat, you know, this element of sort of you know paying a, a portion of your money towards uh, from your savings rather and sort of helping that money is spent spent on the sort of the the more the, the positive activists of society, as you said, dealing with homelessness and all the you know, if people but knew that there are sort of funds to address that, it just shows how uh, when you think about it, the central pillar then is 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 this notion of we should be we should be fearful that there is a creator out there, isn't it? That is sort of watching 
how we should live our lives. Would you say that's absolutely? And, and you know, all, all wealth comes from from that creator, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, whilst yeah, it is our wealth in that se- that sense, but it ultimately isn't our wealth. Yeah. Um, and you know, you mentioned Zagat. Um, you know, acu- that the reason for Zagat is to prevent the accumulation of wealth and you know, idle resource. Yeah. So if you've got money just sitting sitting there for a, a year and you're not using it, yeah. um, it it's there to kind of um, prevent that and, and uh, yeah. s- uh, stop keep that gap keep between uh, um, yeah. inequality. Yeah. yeah, Well, I'm afraid that's it for this week's edition of Pathway to Peace. We're back same time next week. A big thank you to, a big thank you to our resident economics expert, Anil Tahir, for his analysis and assessment of the key issues. But before we end, here's a quote taken from the late second caliph, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad's book, the economic system of Islam, where he offers the following timeless advice to bring about a pathway to peace. He says, After reflecting over these important matters, a reasonable person would inc- conclude that a practical economic system must leave room for religion. Short-term economic considerations must not permit the longer-term consequence of an economic system be ignored. Only that economic system would be beneficial to humanity which fulfills everyone's basic needs, but also promotes healthy competition among individuals while curbing unhealthy rivalry. Thus, the real solution to the problem is that, one, in accordance with the Islamic teaching, the rights of the poor should be safeguarded, and two, the hopes and aspirations of people should be fostered. Hope and aspirations are vital for national progress. A nation where people no longer have aspirations or its poor are denied basic rights, is inevitably destined to its ruin.